Do not love the world or anything in the world. Thomas Jefferson was the third president of the United States of America. And one of the things, I think there's lots of things he's remembered for, one of them is the Jefferson Bible. In 1820, he produced an edited account of the life of Jesus based on the Gospels. And this literally involved cutting into his Bible with a razor, cutting out the bits that he liked and gluing them together into his own edited collection of the life of Jesus. And the result was a kind of sanitised picture of Jesus. No miracles, no angels, no resurrection, no reference to Jesus being God, just the bits of his teaching that suited Jefferson's desire to promote morality. Now, most Christians instinctively find the idea of editing the Bible to to keep just the bits that we like ridiculous. And yet, do we not easily, in practice, behave as if parts of the Bible were not there? Or do we not wish that parts of the Bible were not there? If Thomas Jefferson had continued to John's first letter... I wonder if chapter 2, verse 15, would have made his cut. But even more importantly, does it make ours? How do you feel when you hear that command? Do not love the world or anything in the world. Perhaps guilty? I fear that I do indeed love the world a little too much. Or confused? Well, because what does it mean anyway? Can I not love my family? The good things about my job, perhaps, watching the Rugby World Club, a a glass of fine wine, going to the theatre, or perhaps it might make us feel angry. This is why I have a problem with God and Christianity. He's a megalomaniac spoil sport. Well, like much of this letter, it's easy to pick out individual verses and fixate on them. And many books and articles and sermons have been written and preached on just this one verse, verse 15 in chapter 2. But we saw last time, if you were here, and you can catch up online if you'd like to, a good tool can easily be misused in the wrong hands as a weapon, like a baseball bat. And verses like this can be kind of weaponized to burden us with guilt and leave us feeling wretched and hopeless. But John's overall purpose in this letter is to encourage genuine believers in Jesus to stick with what they already have and already know in Christ. He's not in the business of heaping hopeless guilt on followers of Jesus. So to understand what he's getting at in this verse, we need to take a step back and look at the whole reading that we heard. And the headings on the pink, on the back of the pink notice sheet take us through the logic of these verses. You know the Father, so do not love the world, but love the Father and live forever. So let's see that step by step. First of all, you know the Father, verses 12 to 14. As you can see in the way these verses are set out in our Bibles, Suddenly, in the middle of the letter, we have a change of tone, a change of pace, and we hit something like a poem. 
And there are a few things going on here. Some are more clear than others. There are repeated words and phrases. I write to you, dear children. I write to you, fathers. I write to you, young men. And then again, I write to you, dear children. I write to you, fathers. I write to you, young men. Now, the word for dear children is a term of endearment that Jesus used when he spoke to his disciples on the night before he died. So I don't think John is... is, um, Dotting between generations, you know, children, fathers, young men. Dear children is him addressing everybody, and then he's sort of delineating fathers, young men. He's kind of, by doing that, addressing the whole church. He's saying, I'm talking to all of you. You are very dear to me, and I'm talking to all of you. And what he's doing is he's giving them the story so far that we've seen in John's first letter. Your sins are forgiven, he says. Can you see that, verse 12? You know him who is from the beginning. That is God's. You, you, you have known is the same as saying you know, really, in the original language. He's just saying you know God. You do know the real Father in heaven, as we saw in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. You have overcome the evil one. You are strong. The word of God lives in you. You have overcome the evil one. Now, what a thing to say. He emphasizes, doesn't he? He says it twice. The devil has been defeated. Remember we saw at the beginning of chapter 2, if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. And he is the propitiation for our sins. That's how the evil one has been overcome. This is the territory of the hymn before the throne of God above. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Remember, it seems that these antichrist false teachers who've left the church have unsettled the Christians because they're claiming some special victory over sin and evil. A victory that goes beyond what Jesus has achieved. And and John is saying, no, on the one hand, Jesus' death has already dealt with the problem of sin and death and the devil. And on the other hand, while the darkness is passing away, you will continue to sin. But you will be able to go to Jesus for forgiveness. To God through Jesus for forgiveness. That is the normal Christian life. Don't take your ongoing sin as a sign that somehow you haven't got it right. That you need more than what you already have in Christ. You've got it already. Stick with what you've got. Why then does John emphasise all these things in verses 12 to 14? Presumably because the Antichrist false teachers are saying uh, saying things like, you don't know God like we do. He's saying, no, no, you do know the real God. They're saying, you can have complete victory over sin and and evil if you come with us. No, he's saying, you already have that in Jesus through his death, so stick with him. Perhaps they're even saying, you have a dead faith because you insist on sticking with the Bible and the message of the apostles. It's a dead book. It's time to move on. God is speaking in new ways. Can you imagine them saying that? Maybe you've even heard people say that kind of thing today. John says, no, the word of God is living in you. If you stick with the word of God, the apostles' teaching about Jesus, then you know the true and living God. So stick with his living word. Don't let anyone fool you. You know the Father. 
So, so far, this is summing up what we've already seen in the letter. And that's because these verses, 12 to 14, are a kind of turning point in the letter. And we need to do a bit of detective work here to see something about the structure of the whole book, which in turn helps us to understand its message. One thing you can't see in this particular translation is that John first says, I write to you, I write to you, I write to you, present tense, the first three times he says it. But then he actually switches in the second set of three, end of verse 13 and onwards, he he actually says, I wrote or I have written to you, dear children. I have written to you, fathers. I have written to you, young men. And the reason that matters is because through the book, John says a number of times, I am writing to you. He tells us why he's writing the letter. But before these verses in chapter 1, he says, I or we write to you in the present tense, like in verses 12 and, and the first half of verse 13. And then after these verses, the rest of the times he says, I write to you in the rest of the letter, verse 21 and chapter 2, verse 26, chapter 5, verse 13, they are in the past tense. Saying, I, I, I have written, verse 13, verse 14. Now, I think, oh, come on, what, what on earth is the significance of that? Well, in one sense, it's just a stylistic thing. It's quite right to just translate it, still, I write. It doesn't change the overall meaning of it, but it does mark out a change in the section of the letter that he's in. He's moving from section one to section two. Now, to us today, we think, well, what, what? I don't get that, that's weird. We, 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 we're used to the Apostle Paul, who writes kind of logic. You know, it's, all line, it's logical, linear progression through his letters. This is true, therefore this is true, and because of that, you better go and do this. And we kind of think, okay, I get that. But John is different. He doesn't write like that. He, his way of showing his progression of argument through the letter is to use these little signals that something's changed. Now, okay... Section 1, section 2, does it really matter that much? Well, it helps us to understand what this letter is doing. Because you can see the first section of his letter from the beginning of chapter 1 up to this point, the big idea is that God is light. And you get that straight after the introduction, chapter 1, verse 5. And then at the end of this section, he returns to it, the light is passing away, chapter 2, verse 8. And then we don't hear anything more about light and darkness at all in the rest of the letter. And the word that then features from verse 15 onwards is this word, world. Verse 15, do not love the world. And then it pops up again and again and again after that, right through to the end of the letter. And verse 17, like the darkness, the world too is passing away. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if that's a bit hard to kind of get your head around when you first hear it, but it's really just an aside to show us a bit of working and to illustrate the kind of thing any of us can do if we're trying to get into a book of the Bible to work out its message. It's about looking for repeated words and phrases. What is the author trying to get across to us? Look for the way that he writes. Look for the repeated words, rather than just sort of plucking out a random verse and, and... Uh, reading whatever we like into it. Now, we're trying to understand what the author was getting at as he wrote this letter. And so he's sort of beginning a new section. He's saying, you know the Father. That's what we've established so far from the beginning of chapter 1. You know the Father. You you, you confess your sin. You love um, brothers and sisters, as we've seen the last couple of weeks. You know the Father if you're a believer in Jesus. Therefore, as we move to the second half of the letter, do not love 
the world. So that's the second thing we see. See it on the pink sheet. Do not love the world, verses 15 and 16. What is he then getting at? Note, first of all, that, that John sees only two ways that you can love. He's often black and white, as we've seen before. And here he's saying, you either have the love of the world or you have the love of the Father. We saw last time that the love of the Father could mean the Father's love for us, you know, God's love for us, or it could be like the love of coffee or the love of sport, our love for the Father, love of the Father, do you see? And because he's talking about knowing God and doing God's will in verse 17 and and in general who or what you love, it's almost certainly our love for the Father that he's talking about. You either love the Father or you love the world. Do you see? That's what he's saying in these verses. You can't love both. Okay then, well what does he mean by that then? Well he explains, verse 16, he unpacks what he means by loving the world. Is it everything in the world? Well he says everything in the world, but then he says what he means by that. The cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. And he says these things come not from the Father, but they come from the world. Now we saw before he often works in threes. And very often with these threes, these triplets, the first thing is the headline, and the second and third thing explain or expand on that headline. So, dear children is then expanded into fathers and young men, we saw in in, in verses 12 to 14. In chapter 1, it it was, if you say you walk in the light, which expanded into saying, if you say you have no sin, and, and saying that you have not sinned. So now, do you see, it's another three. He's saying... Don't love the world, what does he mean? Well, it's the cravings of sinful human beings, and he says the cravings of sinful human beings are lust and boasting. Lust and boasting. Lust is wanting what you don't have, isn't it? And boasting is gloating over what you do have. Do you see what what he's saying? So this is about materialism. This is what he's getting at when he says, do not love the world. And like a lot of this letter, it starts to feel very contemporary, very quickly. What he says then when he's saying don't love the world is don't live for more and more stuff that you don't have. And don't boast and glory in what you do have. Now, of course, we live in a world where we can't avoid material things. And we know God is good. And we know the world that he made, he made in the beginning, it was good. But as someone put it, the issue with coveting and lusting and boasting is not when we own stuff. That's not the issue. We can own stuff. The problem is when stuff owns us. Do you see the difference? The issue is not really what I do or don't have. You could be rich or poor. The issue is when either want or plenty possesses us and becomes the thing that we must live for and satisfy. And actually having, not having enough can be a burden on us and having too much can also have that same possession of us. Do you see? Both are a problem. So as we said before, can't I love my family? Can't I love the good things about my job? Can't I love watching the Rugby World Cup? Can't I love a glass of fine wine? Can't I love going to the theatre as well as loving God? Well, Augustine of Hippo summed it up very helpfully. He said this, he loves thee too little who loves anything together with thee which he loves not for thy sake. 
He loves thee too little who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. Do you see what he's saying? If we love things which are not God as an end in themselves, that's where the problems begin. Because we're loving them instead of God. We sin when we do that. But if we receive what our loving Father has created as a gift from his hand with thankfulness and joy, then we honour our Father. The issue with stuff, with material possessions, comes when we believe the lie that more money, more possessions, a better car, a better house, better stuff will actually make us happy, will make us important, will make us secure, will make us rich. Because the thing about wealth and the thing about riches is they appear to give us everything we need when the only one who can ever give us what we actually most deeply need is God. And aren't we such fools when we go after wealth as an end in itself. Because life is like a big game of Monopoly. You know, you go round and round, and some of us do better than others, and there are winners and there are losers, but in the end, it all goes back in the box. And actually, we go in a box as well. Now, hopefully, if we're Christians trusting in Jesus, none of this is new to us. We may find this hard to put into practice, but we, we kind of know it. But here's the thing, why is John writing this to these believers? Why do they suddenly, after all this stuff about knowing the Father, why do they need to be warned about not loving the world? Well, all the way through the letter so far, we've seen how the Antichrist false teachers help to explain why John is saying what he says. And if you flick forward to chapter 4, verse 5, it's just across the page. Chapter 4, verse 5, you can see why this is such an important theme for this church to hear in the face of these Antichrist false teachers unsettling them. He's talking about the Antichrist, he's calls them false prophets, false teachers. Verse 5, what does he say? He says, they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. Do you see? These guys who seem so super spiritual and impressive, just say, no, no, actually, they're just from the world. But you do not love the world. Why does he need to say that? It's so that these Christians won't be fooled into feeling inferior. Because he's saying, no, look, these guys are fake. They're really just playing the same game that the rest of the world around you plays. We often talk about how the church must be in the world, influencing the world. But here the issue is that the world is in the church. I occasionally go swimming in the ponds on the heath. Sue is a a, a regular. Uh, I'm a fair, I'm not even a fair weather dipper, I'm a heat wave dipper. So once a year. But if you go swimming in the ponds, you really need to keep your mouth shut. Because there's no artificial treatment or cleaning in these ponds. They just try and they keep them sort of muck out the top of it. But they publish the bacteria count. You can find it on their websites. And we're talking parts per million or billion or whatever it is. But there is usually a trace of E. coli and, and various other nasty bugs. So, you know, you can swim in the water, provided your body can cope with the cold. 
but the water cannot go in you. Do you see? And with, with the false teachers, it seems, they're not actually influencing the world, they are being influenced by it. They seem super spiritual, but really their religion is power and status and wealth. And the reason they look impressive in the world, John is saying, is actually what's well, because they belong to the world. Now, isn't this something we need to think about today? How often do we feel the need to shape our message and our image to look acceptable in the world's eyes? I think John would say to us, hey, look, don't expect the world to agree with everything you say and to think you're doing an amazing thing by trusting in Jesus and following him and making the decisions that you make in your life as a Christian. Expect that to be weird in the world because the world has a different set of values. But the thing is, so much of what passes, for example, as kind of so-called Christian celebrity culture falls into that trap, doesn't it? You know, because the way to get a following, the way to get people to, to kind of speak about you and follow you and to get the book deals and the website and all that, all that kind of stuff, one easy way to do that is to say something novel, say something different, say something, if you're not very careful, that is false. And the so-called health and wealth ministries of people like Benny Hinn and T.D. Jakes and so on, that's really what they're doing. See, they're claiming to, oh, look, we rediscovered this thing that nobody in the Christian church has talked about for all these years. But really, when you look at it, actually what they're doing is they're playing the world's game of power and celebrity and status as they literally fly around the world in private jets paid for by the proceeds of the followers who think that they're giving to God. It's It's just worldliness. But what are we using our money for, either as individuals or as the church as a whole? Is it to serve God and his kingdom, or is it to boost our status in the eyes of others? Whatever shape that takes, whether in the name of Christianity and spirituality and religion, as it were, or or, or just uh, not even the name of that. When we do that, that is the world's game. That's what the world does with its money. Now, it goes without saying that many people are incredibly blessed in in Hampstead. And we as a church are with this incredible building and the resources that we have. And it would be easy to boast, wouldn't it? It would be easy to think that we're special. It would be easy to seek power and status through what we have. John says, do not love the world. What then should we do instead? He says, finally, very briefly, he says, love the world and live forever. From verse 17, the world and its desires are passing away. The game of monopoly will end and everything will go back in the box. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. And the word for lives is the same as the word for abiding for staying, for remaining. It's the language Jesus used when he said, he was the vine, remain in me, he said, and you will bear fruit. See, this isn't just about life after death, pie in the sky when you die. This is about saying, you only really start to live when you find life in Jesus Christ. Life that starts now and continues and improves even through death. 
And if that's something that you personally have not yet discovered for yourself, that is an invitation that is open to you even today to trust in him, to say no to going the world's way and yes to going the way of God by trusting in his son, Jesus. Any of us can do that. But this language of living, of staying, remaining, abiding, it's also the language of staying as opposed to going. Do you see, and we're going to see, uh, next time we're going to see the Antichrist false teachers have gone. They've departed. But no, you stay. And you stay by staying in Jesus. You stay by sticking with Jesus who reveals the real God to us. You stay by sticking with Jesus who you find in the word of the apostles in the Bible that we have today. And you stay by doing the will of God. It's the equivalent of loving God from earlier in the verses. He can't mean do God's will perfectly, as if now the standard is 100%. Do the will of God, you can live forever. No, we've seen, if you say you have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But this is about saying, no, Out of the two, am I going to go God's way or am I going to go the world's way? Which way am I going to commit? And followers of Jesus are those who say, no, I want to go his way, not mine, not the world's. And the thing is, it is very difficult to love the world when you are consumed by the love of God. It's very hard to be selfish when you are gazing at the cross. It's very hard to feel hard done by when through the cross you see the love of your heavenly father. The 17th century minister John Owen in his book Sin and Temptation said this. He said, when someone sets his affections upon the cross and the love of Christ, he crucifies the world as a dead and undesirable thing. The baits of sin lose their attraction and disappear. Fill your affections with the cross of Christ And you will find no room for sin. See, the way we grow in our willingness and our ability to say no to loving the world and yes to loving God is to keep going to the cross. That then will be how we avoid simply cutting out and ignoring these challenging verses. So we thought about the beginning. And we'll do that because we've found something and someone even more beautiful and wonderful and lasting than the world can ever offer. So, do not love the world and do not be fooled by those who do. Let's pray. Father, in this time of, while there is still light, your light, and yet there is still darkness, passing away, yet not yet gone completely, and in this time when the world is very much here and amongst us, and passing away, yet not yet gone forever, Father, we know our hearts to be so easily pulled towards going with the desires of the world around us, cravings of lust and boasting, wanting what we don't have, boasting in what we do have. 
Father, we praise you for the good news that when we confess our sin, you are faithful and just. You will forgive us our sins. You will purify us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he speaks to you in our defence. Thank you that he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We trust in him. I pray that if anybody has not yet done that for themselves, that they would take the opportunity to do that, to take steps to find out what they need to do in order to be able to do that. But we pray most of all, Father, that our eyes would be fixed on you and loving you. Thank you that we can truly know you through Jesus. And so as we know more and more of your love for, for us and for the world in him, might we then find saying no to loving the world and yes to following you are come more and more naturally. And might we therefore not be fooled into thinking that we're, we're missing out but know with confidence that if we have Jesus we have everything and so we pray in Jesus name Amen